The Missouri, she's a mighty river. Away, rolling river. The red man's camp lies on her borders. Away, we're bound away across the wide. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, uh, we'll be starting Moby Dick. So I'll, I'll give it my best uh, attempt. Obviously, people a lot smarter and more well-read and you know, have, have, have went through this book. This book's been written about so many times. And I've been intimidated. I one reason I kind of delayed even looking at this volume of Melville's writings was that you know I, I just felt there's so little I can actually say about Moby Dick to add to it. But um, as always, I'll look at this stuff more as a historian, more you know as a, particularly as a labor historian, and kind of focus on those themes. I'm, I'm not trained in literature, so maybe I can just you know add to the conversation a little bit. Um, about it. I mean, in a way, this is probably true of most of these works that I've looked at, that I'm, you know, there, there have been people who spend their whole life studying this, and that's certainly true in the case of, of Moby Dick, you know, and Melville in general. So I'll just make my best effort, and uh, admittedly, I'll just be, be scratching the surface. But, you know, to the degree that this is a, a blog of, of my, my, my effort to read through as much of the Library of America uh, as I can, you know, I think, I hope my comments on, on Moby Dick will, will help, help people or, or be a little bit of a contribution to our understanding of this, this great work. So I'll be doing it over six episodes. It's a little bit more than 600 pages, but it's, it's close enough. So just a little bit longer than, than White Jacket. I know this, this is kind of like seen as a tome, as a massive book, but it's really not that long. And it's actually a fairly quick read when you, when you get into it. Uh, in this episode, the next one, I'll look at the first uh, 40 chapters or so, which I, I want to focus here on the crew in these first two episodes, focus on the crew of the Pequod, our, our characters, the class divisions on the ship, and, you know, the pace schedule. And, and in a way, this, this book s- sort of begins just as another example of Melville's sea fiction, right? We have a guy, for whatever reason, is on board a, a ship. And if you want to put it next to Redburn in, in White Jacket, you have one looking at a merchant fleet, one looking at the naval fleet, and one looking at the whaling fleet. These three um, cornerstones of of America's maritime history in the 19th century, right? And Melville had his experience in all of these, and he was documenting it. Now, we, of course, Mel, uh, Moby Dick does much more than that. And it's a much grander novel. It's, it's, it's bigger. It's got more to say. Uh, it's more philosophically attuned than than the white jacket, which is very political and very much a, a text of, of a school of reformers. But I, I still want to talk about this this kind of experience of the working class, you know, set up this crew. And that, that's what I'm going to do in this episode and the next one. When we get to the middle part of the novels, I really want to start to analyze what Melville thinks about whiteness. Why is it important the whale's white? How does this connect to white jacket and, and the, what that color meant for that character and that novel? So I'll focus more on those themes. 
and try to understand who this whale is. And in the final one, I'll, I'll of course talk about the final confrontation between the Pequod and, and the white whale. But I also have some things I want to say about technology and the role of technology in this novel. So, but for now, let's, let's focus on, on the crew and the 300th lay, which is how our character is paid. And that, that's a, like an interesting part of it. But again, this novel starts out as just another maritime adventure. You, you know you're somewhere different, though, from early on. Like, especially when you have that opening section of this novel, which is just like a list of dictionary references and other references in literature and, and uh, technical books and scientific tracks about whales. It's, you don't have that in, in Melville's other, other works. And that's a bit off. Like, why is he doing that? Why is he starting with, it's like 20 pages or so on the entomology of whales and a section called extracts, which goes on and on and on with all these examples from different slices of life, different people trying to understand the whale. You know, and that suggests we're doing something different. And then very early on, where we just meet our main character, Ishmael, as he goes to, I think it's New Bedford first, before on his way to Nantucket, he spends a night with Queequeg at like the Whalers Inn. But he goes to a chapel and church. But he always has these weird asides, and the asides are much uh, deeper and more philosophical than the asides in like White Jacket or even Redburn, where they're they're those are drawn from life. These are he's commenting much more on literature and philosophy and reflecting on things in a much different way than he did in those other in those other works. So, but anyways, I want to. I, I do want to focus though on the crew and who these characters are, and and what Melville is trying to say about the about the about the crew itself. So, anyways, that's how I'll start. Anyways, it's it, like I said, I'm doing my best with this work, which I'm totally intimidated. You know, I don't even feel I have a right to even talk about this. I, I don't feel that way with like Taipei and Omu, but with this work, I just. I just feel overwhelmed by the libraries of literature that have been written about it, and much of most of what I haven't even read. So, in a sense, I'm, I, you know, I'm engaging in a in a dialogue that I don't, you know, I haven't put the work into. And you know, Melville scholars can, you know, probably aren't listening to this podcast anyway. So, I guess I I try won't I try not I'll try not to think about it too much. All right, then here we go. So we start with a section called entomology, where Melville just defines the term whale. And of course, the book is called Moby Dick or the Whale. So that's the subtitle, The Whale. Uh, that's going to be his, his focus throughout all of it, you know, even less so than the, the human characters. Then he had, so in the entomology section, he actually gives you like, 10, 15 different languages and how they use the word whale. And then this drifts into the extracts. And the extracts are just pulled from all their types of literature, everything from biblical references to whales, to scientific ones, to philosophical accounts about whales, and voyagers' accounts. Um, and let me try to give you some taxonomy of what's going on here. So for the first extracts are from the Bible. So we have Job uh, mentioned in Leviathan, Jonah, of course, his story of the whale. That comes up a lot in this, in this novel. Then we move on to the classics and the classical writers. Pilney, uh, Lucian, uh, all, not all the way up to Montagian, just other classical accounts from the ancient and, and medieval period about, about whales. It's then he jumps to works that talk about whaling from the perspective of scientists and scientific precisions. 
So we have a little bit of Shakespeare here in, in poets, but um, we start to get a more scientific account of whales in some of these. And then we also get a much more, as we move on through these extracts, a much more industrial and practical look at whales, whaling as an industry, whaling as a, as a, a, a form of work for people. Then we got uh, extracts that, that look at whaling as a, a slice of life, as something that people experience, as, as kind of the almost the labor history of it. And so we have entries from the narrative of the Globe Mutiny, Frederick Debel Benton's whaling voyage around the world. So these are from people who were on whaling ships and experienced them. And we even have things like whale songs, so, songs sung by, by whalers and things from Nantucket. So we go from, we get many different points of view about the whale. And, and Melville here is, is perhaps doing some satire on, on being very pedantic about whales, but I also like how he shows there's multiple points of view and perspectives about this thing. It's, and he's adding to that, of course. Maybe he's trying to tell the ultimate story about the whale and, and end that, but I'm not quite sure he is because he, he starts with so many diverse points of view on the whale. He wants to show that it's such a big part of our lives, even if we don't experience it. You know, and, and then those were the days when the light in your home came from whale oil. And, and so you kind of lived with the flesh of a whale in, in your everyday life, even if you weren't on the ship with, with these sailors. But then how they're, they're in literature. And even, you know, most of these people have never seen a whale. Right? This is before aquariums. I, I, probably most people now never see a whale. You know, maybe some people are lucky enough to go on a whaling, a voyage where they can see whales. Or they're lucky enough to live in a city with an aquarium and they can afford to go. But most people don't don't see them, but they know about them. And they're such a part of our experience from young kids. You know, it's just speaking of this, like my daughter's first word, or one of her first words, and we actually have a YouTube video of her saying this, was whale. I don't know why, was she just that sound, whale, whale, whale. But she was saying whale. That was one of her first words, like after mama, baba, that kind of thing, was whale. And it's, you know, I, I don't have a reason why, but we must have given her that word through stories, through through books and things like that. So it's 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 such a big part of our life. And it's just a fascinating section. It, you actually read through this. I It might be interesting. Our lot, some people might just skip this, thinking it's not important to the plot. But, wow, I mean, just the endless recitation of different journalistic or, or literary representations of whales, you know, are, are here. It's It's a lot of fun to read that section. Um, and so then we're 20 pages into this book and we finally get to chapter one. And, you know, it's not, we don't even get to the ship till over 100 pages in the novel. You know, it takes them 200 pages or a whole third of the novel to even talk, of, to get to the crew and even to get to a chapter called Moby Dick, where, you know, the main plot of the novel is introduced. It takes them that long to get there. It's, that's never been the case in any of these other stories that Melville wrote. He always pretty much gets to the point. With Taipei from page one, he wants to desert from Omu. You know, it takes a little bit longer there because they spend time on the ship, but it's pretty clear that where the theme of it is. Even Marty, which takes a while to get going, you know, it's it's a maybe equivalent about two thirds, a third in that you start to know you're in a different world. You're not in a normal, you're not in Kansas anymore. But with Redburn and White Jacket, pretty much his themes are right there from the beginning. What his characters are doing, why is why is the character there? You know, they're on the ship from the beginning in those novels, for instance. With this, it takes them so long to actually get going with it. You, you, that's one reason I think the novel kind of, even though it's thick and, and beefy, it, it feels like it goes fast. Because by the time you're introduced to Moby Dick, it's like you're, you're a 
well on your way to the end of the novel almost, right? So a lot of novels, by the you get to the halfway point, the author has to start getting to the resolution, right? And he's almost to the halfway point before we even know why we're here or what this novel is, is really about. So we're first introduced to our narrator, Ishmael. It's the first line of the novel, of course, call me, call me Ishmael. And we, it's mostly about why he wants to travel and why he wants desire to travel. And, and you know, it's such one of the more famous um, parts of the novel, maybe because a lot of people read this far, but they don't get much farther. Maybe this is as far as a lot of people get. Um, but he's just, he's just facing this wanderlust. He feels this desire to do something new with his life. Um, quote, it is a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I feel myself growing grim above the mouth, whenever it's a damp, drizzly November in my soul, wherever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand to me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping onto the street and methodically knocking people's hats off, then I count it's high time to get to see as soon as I can. This is my substitute for the pistol and ball. With the philosophical flourish, Cato throws himself upon my sword. I quietly take to the ship. Look, well, it's not the first time this guy's gone to sea. I think it's the first time he's gone on a whaling voyage. And that's one reason he doesn't get paid very much. But he's, it's, he starts with this draw of the water, too. Like how the water draws him and draws other people to it. Uh, we've seen this before in Redburn, but never in quite, I think, this stunning... Description Later on, now when I say that I'm in the habit of going to sea, whenever I begin to grow hazy around the eyes and begin to be overconscious of my lungs, I do not mean to have it inferred that I ever go to sea as a passenger. For to go as a passenger, one must have a purse, and a purse is but a rag unless you have something in it. All right? So he's poor. He's a poor man. You know, we're with this character for so long, and we don't feel we actually know that much about him because he spends so much time talking about the people around him. But we know he's poor. We know he doesn't seem to have much of a family. He... He has this kind of rootlessness and aimlessness. And I mean, so he's a classical Melville character who, 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 who's plagued with anxiety and wanderlust and this need to, to f go here and there. So yeah, the novel begins in some familiar territory. A worker, uh, we know he's a teacher. He's bored with life, seeking new adventure, and decides to go to a ship. Reading only the first chapter, we recognize Ishmael as akin to Taipei or Taji, Red Burner and White Jacket. Uh, they're straight-up workers. They lack the romantic journeying of the characters in the Pacific novels, perhaps. But nevertheless, we get a rich and, and quite cynical picture of the human condition here in the opening pages. Ishmael has no illusions about a better life at sea. It's not going to change him as Redburn thought it would change him. He even claims that all of humanity at one point is enslaved when thinking about the brutal conditions and the, the fact that you have to do what the bosses say and there's hierarchy. He says, we're all slaves. Um, and he says, it's not worse than any other. He addresses the November in my soul by becoming a worker uh, and a worker who's not particularly well treated. So there's no typey for him. There's no Ela to search for. These aren't like the themes in the Pacific novels, even though this is going to be in the Pacific, too. There's not that kind of romanticism we had in there. He's resigned to fate. Quote, I think I can see a little into the springs and motives, which being cunningly presented to me under various disguises induced me to set about performing the part I did. Besides, could join me into the delusion that it was a choice resulting from my own unbiased free will and discriminating judgment. Now, Ahab's motives are different. He's on a quest to destroy an evil and malevolent force, at least what he sees to be an evil and malevolent force, and it seems uh, the characters and, and Melville himself seem to agree. But 
interestingly, it's those on top who can redirect their energies into hobbies. And I guess it's understating it to say this was a hobby for Ahab, but he does have the privilege to to conjole these workers into his quest. Working folk are lucky if their labors affirm any of their values or or pique their interests. So that's so we, he spends quite a lot of time, not quite ten pages, but six seven pages into these motives, and then we follow our character as he he goes on his little mini first quest to Nantucket. But first, he has to get through New Bedford and get on. I think he has to take a boat to Nantucket, and from there he can sign on to um, in, in, into a whaling ship. And this is where he meets. Uh, Queequeg, a Pacific Islander. And one thing that's going to happen on this ship, the Pequod, is we're going to find an international group of people. Uh, Melville talked about this in White Jacket, that the American Navy is peopled by foreigners. Here, it's not a military, so it's got a different connotation, peopled by foreigners. But at one point, he says one out of two people on board these ships is a foreigner, is not an American. And he, so we're going to get this wonderful cast of characters. So it's going to be Queequeg. It's really from the harpoonist that we get the best model of it. We have a Pacific Islander, a Native American, an African, and, a, and an Arab too. And it's, it's the three ships, one for each mate. And the mates are Starbuck, Stubbs, and Flask, right? Those short one. And these are the three. And they each have one uh, Carpunus, Queequeg with the one, Tashtigo with Stubbs, and Flask has Dagu. And these are, so there, I think there's actually a fourth ship. I, I forget who, I, we'll find out who runs that later on. That's like um, not an official mate that does it. So Queequeg is not only a Pacific Islander, he's a pagan. So this is going to test very early on Ishmael's feelings of solidarity and openness. He's like a Presbyterian or something. He's just a normal American Protestant, and he's faced with this prospect very early in the novel of sleeping with Queequeg, with sleeping with this Pacific Islander, who he's, he's kind of horrified by the tattooing. This is something Melville expressed earlier in, in Type E2. Here. He doesn't really like the tattooing. But here, it's not just that he has to live with these uh, tattooed people like in Type E. Here, he has to literally sleep with them because there's no room at the inn, right? So we got kind of a Christ. Um, motif right away. No room at the inn for him. He said, well, we have, you can share a, a, a bed with a harpoonist. And it turns out this harpoonist is not white. He's, he's um, a Pacific Islander. But we're getting this people coming from all over the world. In fact, I think on page, like the very second page of the novel or something, he talks about water drawing people from all over the world and him being just one of those. So in a later chapter, and we'll talk about this in the next part, we have the knights and squires, the knights being the mates and the squires being the harpoonists and this kind of hierarchy there. Um, so, and they have different, they reflect different aspects of American history and American experience and American identity. Like Starbuck, for instance, is the pure reflection of pragmatism and capitalist logic, right? And, you know, but then the knight, the, 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 the squires of these three knights are exploited members, people who suffer genocide and violence and slavery and do that same American experience. Now, whiteness is an important, of course, important color uh, in this novel, the, the white whale, right? And, and for Melville, this whiteness is kind of a blankness, a kind of a malevolent emptiness. 
Um, but our, actually, the first color that's analyzed directly by, by our author is darkness and blackness. Quote, it seemed a great black parliament sitting on trumpet. A hundred black faces turned round in the roast to peer and beyond. A black angel of doom was beating a book with a pulpit. It was a Negro church, church, and a preacher's text was about the blackness of darkness and the weeping and wailing and the teeth gnashing there. Ha ah, Ishmael, muttered I, backing out. Wretched entertainment at the sign of the trap. So this is him when he's on his way to the Sprouter Inn, the inn that he's going to stay at. So he's already experiencing this racial diversity. Um, now, he's, it's going to come straight home to him when he gets to the Sprouter Inn and is forced to to sleep with 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 Queequeg right next to him. Right Now, he goes into the Sprouter Inn, the Spouter Inn, and of course a whaling inn. It's got the, the spouter referring to the blowhole of, of the whale. That's one way they identified him, right? The spurts of of water, of of air and water shooting up. Um, he starts out with this this oil painting showing a scene of whaling, right? And he reflects on this and mulls over it for quite a while, two two or three pages. It seems to be a lot of foreshadowing in it. Quote, in fact, the artist design seemed this, a final theory of my own, partially based on the aggregate opinions of many aged persons with whom I conversed upon the subject. The picture represents a Cape Horner in a great hurricane and a half-floundering ship weltering there with its three dismantled masts alone visible and an exacerbated whale purporting to spring clean over the craft is its enormous act of impaling himself upon the three-headed, three mastheads. So that's that's him. And now, there's several things, though, when he's told he has to sleep with, he has to share a, a, a hammock with Queequeg that offends him. One is the, the tattoos, the fact that he's a different race, uh, his religion. All these things are potential offensive to him. But he has to then approach him as a human being. And, and there's a lot of symbolism, I think, in just the sleeping together. He even like wakes up with Queequeg's arm around him in kind of the gesture of a lover. Right. This is the working class from different races coming together into this common experience. Right. Queequeg in the next day actually says, like, I will go on the ship that you go on. I will bind my fate to yours. And this, of course, this decision dooms Queequeg to to his death. And Ishmael often reflects on the odd oddity of, of sleeping with this pagan. And he decides basically in the solidarity of man trumping this this diversity. Quote. You get in, he added, motioning to me with his tomahawk and throwing his clothes to one side. He really did this in not only a civil, but in a really kind and charitable way. I stood looking at him a moment. For all his tattooing, he was on the whole a clean, comely-looking cannibal. What's all this fuss I've been making about, thought I to myself. The males, the man's a human being just as I am. He has as much reason to fear me as I have to be afraid of him. Better sleep with a sober cannibal than a drunken Christian, he concludes. And... This is going to be tested again later on in the early part of the novel with with Queequeg's religion. Um, the next scene, though, is uh, well, he wakes up uh, and he sees Queequeg's morning ritual, his dressing, and the things he go he goes through. They then eat breakfast, and during the breakfast, they he thinks about the look of the area. The connection of this one point in space and time with whaling, with the sea and the different people who have passed through, 
the different people who had experienced whaling or saw it uh, or were part of this. Um, quote, these reflections here are just occasioned by the circumstances that after we were all seated at the table, for I was preparing to hear some good stories about whaling, and my no small surprise, nearly every man maintained a profound silence. Not only that, but they looked embarrassed. Yes, here was a set of sea dogs, many of them without the slightest bashfulness, had boarded great whales on the high seas, entire strangers to them, and dueled them dead without winking. And yet here they all sat in a social breakfast table, all of them calling, all of them keen to your tastes, looking round as sheepishly at each other, as though they had never been out of sight of some of the sheepful of the green mountains. A curious sight, these bashful bears, these timid warrior whalemen. Again, there's a kind of a focus on the commonality and the common experience and solidarity of them. What he does then, then Ishmael leaves Queequeg after breakfast and then goes to the chapel. And he goes to the, the sailor's chapel. And in a chapter called The Sermon, this is actually, we're already to chapter 9, or, not, almost a tenth of the way through the novel already. This chapter nine where he sees this speech and the speech is on, it's on death, it's on Jonah, it's on whaling. It, it's a speech, it's a sermon connecting to the experience of these, these whalers. And we get things that perhaps we're familiar with if we've been reading Melville as, as we have been. Um, one is like the performativity of, of the preaching. That's one thing that strikes out here in the speech. And the symbolism of the whale, of Jonah, of, of the sailor, and how that is used to, to tell these kind of, uh, you know, to do the sermon. I guess all preachers sort of do this, right? They connect to something that people know and then connect it to the Bible in a way. But this one is really about like there's a lot of terror here and fear of hell and it's, it's kind of a bombastic fire and brimstone sermon. Quote, this is from the sermon itself. Shipmates, this book containing only four chapters, four yarns, is one of the smallest strands in the mighty cable of the scriptures. Yet what depths of the soul does Jonah's deep sea line sound? What a pregnant lesson to us is this prophet. What a noble thing is that canticle in the fish's belly. How billow-like and boisterously grand. We feel the flood surging over us. We sound with him to the kelpy bottom of the waters. Seaweed and all the slime of the sea is about us. But what is the lesson of this book Jonah teaches us? Shipmates, it is a two-stranded lesson, a lesson to all of us as sinful men, a lesson to me as pilot of the living God. As sinful men is a lesson to all of us because it is a story of the sin, hard-heartedness, suddenly awakening fears, the swift punishment, repentance, prayers, and finally deliverance and joy of Jonah. Um, now, of course, what I mean, that's what the Bible is. It's full of symbolism, right? People come to the Bible and read these stories and reflect on them as symbols that they can connect in their own lives, right? And I think in a way, Melville is warning against this, about giving these things overarching symbolism and meaning. I mean, that's the problem with Ahab at the end of the day, right? Why he is doomed is because he gives meaning to something that's just an animal, right? I think we do this a lot. We 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 intone into into nature certain emotions or feelings, right? We we imagine the the sorrow a human has over the death of their child is is shared by a, a cat or a dog or something. You know, we kind of anthropomorphize animals. We you know, and we introduce it to children very early on with cartoons, right? We give these things symbolic meaning. And you can't you can't turn on the TV and not see animals being used as metaphors, the natural world being used metaphorically. And of course, that's always done in, in religious life. 
Um, we also get here, though, the concept of the world as a ship, which is something that, that Melville had just finished talking about in his novel of the previous year, White Jacket. So that's, that's not gone away. So there's Melville being a bit of a, being a bit metaphorical. Um, yeah, there's a bit of pompacity to the whole sermon, though. And I, I think the use of sailors and whaling as metaphors in the sermon and in Jonah's story is all looked at a bit suspiciously here. At least that's how I, I see it. After the sermon, though, he goes back to the Sailor's Inn and runs into Queequeg. And see, the chapter is called A Bosom Friend, so he's already good friends with them. And he experiences Queequeg's religion. So while he was at church, Queequeg was doing his own prayers. He has this idol, a, a black little figure that he prays to. And then he, he shares this religious experience with Queequeg. He just got out of the church and he experiences a much more, I think, meaningful and relationship right it's not the it's not the guy lecturing it's a shared religious experience yes and he justifies doing this on grounds that basically all religious experiences are are connected there's not a you know prayer is prayer right however it's done right whether one holds his hands and you know it's on his knees before his bed you know or he's talking to an idol it's all prayer and it's all connecting to to the divine quote i was a good christian born and bred in the bosom of the infallible presbyterian church how then could i unite with this wild idolater and worshiping this piece of wood but what a worship i thought do you suppose now ishmael that the magnanimous god of heaven and earth pagans and all included can possibly be jealous of an insignificant bit of black wood impossible but what is worship and to do the will of god that is worship and what is the will of god to do with my fellow man that i would have my fellow man do it to me that is the will of God. Now, Queequeg is my fellow man. And what do I wish that this Queequeg would do? Why well, unite with me in a particular Presbyterian form of worship. Consequently, I must then unite with him in his. Ergo, I must turn idolater. A nice, nice sentiment, certainly. Um, then we get uh, another night with Queequeg that Ishmael shares. They share some smoking at night, something that that Melville comes back to a lot. He does it a little bit in Redburn. Certainly he has a scene on that in White Jacket. It's in Marty too, a wonderful scene in Marty where everyone is smoking together. This allows them to, then Melville goes into a Queequeg's biography. We know more about Queequeg than any other members of the crew, except even than Ishmael really. We don't get the same background from, from Ishmael. But we get Queequeg's biography. Apparently he was a prince back in the Pacific Islands. Of course, there's a lot of kings and chiefs and princes in the Pacific Islands. But then we get the story about how he he turned his back on that and went a whaling and ended up, um, you know, to to become just a member of the American working class, the international working class. Um, yeah, then they pass on to Nantucket. There's a few events. There's an interesting story with the wheelbarrow where they they talk to each other and share stories about wheelbarrows. And, and they almost bump into this guy and almost kill this guy and Queequeg is because he had the harpoon and everything so he almost kills this guy and there's a big fight over this and again Ishmael stands up for and supports uh, Queequeg and so we get a little bit more solidarity on their passage to Nantucket. Oh, they get to Nantucket and first Ishmael refers to Nantucket as, as the center of this whaling economy in a way almost a center of the world and Nantucket is connected to the power of the sea 
almost an empire in its own right. Quote, and thus these have these naked Nantucketers, these sea hermits issuing from their anthill in the sea, overrun and conquered the watering world like so many Alexanders, parceling out among them the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian oceans, as the three pirate powers did Poland. Let America add Mexico to Texas and pile Cuba upon Canada. Let the English overswarm all India and hang on their blazing banner from the sun. Two-thirds of this terraqueous globe are the Nantucketers. From his sea is his, he owns it, as emperor's own empires. Other seamen have but a right of way through it. Merchant ships are but extension bridges, armed ones, but floating forts. Even pirates and privateers, though following the sea as highwaymen the road, but they plunder other ships, other fragments of the land, like themselves, though seeking to draw their living from the bottomless depth itself. End quote. But the whalers are different. They get their life from the sea. Everyone else is just a parasite or a bridge, right? The merchant ship's a bridge connecting lands, but it's the, it's the whalers who make their living from the sea itself. No one else really does that. I guess fishermen. But he doesn't give fishermen that credit. I guess those nowadays fishermen like go out to deep sea, right? The way whalers used to. The similar ecological and, and uh, catastrophic results. There's a little bit more foreshadowing in a chapter called The Chowder, where they, they basically eat some clam chowder. Um, but there's a, a scene where he sees some gallows or something that looks like gallows, again, foreshadowing their doom as they move on to Nantucket. The most interesting chapter and a good place to stop is, is the ship. It's a chapter 16 of the book. Now, pay on the Pequod and other whaling ships was determined by a fraction of the total profits of the voyage. And these were called lays. So Ishmael had hoped that his experience in the merchant service would have provided him a 200th lay, that is, one 200th of the profits of the ship. Now, in one of the most memorable parts of the early sections of this book, we encounter two of the major owners of the ship, Captain Peleg and Captain Bildag. So these were former sea captains who retired and now own a ship, and they, they're hiring for it. So you don't see Ahab. You don't meet Ahab yet. You, you meet Captain Peleg and Captain Bildag. They talk about Ahab, though. And they, are, they basically argue in front of Ishmael about how severely to exploit him. Ishmael, already having decided to sign on to a whaling ship, has a little bargaining power. He's, he's, he has to sign on somewhere, so he has to take what he hope, what he can get. At worst, he figured a 275th lay would have paid for his clothes uh, that he has to, you know, his advance. Remember, Redburn had the same problem of, of having to pay for his own clothes. Bildag wants to pay Ishmael the 777th lay, which is, I guess, basically a pittance. Pella counters with a 300th lay, and that's the amount eventually Ishmael agrees to. Of course, they're being compensated as well through their, their food and, and lodging during their, during their stay, of course, but that's, that's not much. Um, now, the much more valuable harpooner, Queequeg, receives a 90th lay, because they're, they're essential. They're the ones actually killing and hunting the whales. So the same class distinctions that divided the crew of the Neverstink in White Jacket affect the Pequod itself, particularly the contrast between the ordered hierarchy on the top and a much more chaotic democracy among the workers. Quote, now Ahab and his three mates form what may be called the first table in the Pequod's cabin. This is a little bit later in the story, but it, it gets to this class division. Now, Ahab and his three mates formed what may be called the first table in the Pequod's cabin. After their departure, taking place in inverted order to their arrival, the canvas cloth was cleared, or rather was restored to some hurried order by the pallid steward. 
In strange contrast to the hardy, tolerable constraints and nameless, invisible domineerings of the captain's tables was the entire carefree license and ease and almost frantic democracy of those inferior fellows, the harpooners. While their masters and mates seemed afraid of the sound of the hinges in their own jaws, their harpooners chewed their good with such relish that there was a report to it. That is um, chapter 34, the cabin table, which I'll, I'll get back to in the next um, episode. But this whole debating over pay um, and the fact that there is vast differences in the amount of pay and that their pay is based on how well the ship does. So it, it matters to Ishmael and Queequeg that they that they are successful in whales. They're successful in hunting whales. This was an issue, if you remember, way back in Omu, where there was a mutiny because they wanted the captain wanted to go out and catch more whales, and the crew was at basically the end of their capacity to handle it anymore. They've been out for so long, and ships get lost. You know, they go out looking for more whales, and they don't come back because of greed, essentially. Um, this desire for a make a profit and to increase their own wages leads many of these whale men to to their deaths. So um, other interesting things here. Well, Captain Peleg has a very poor view of merchants. So that's why they don't want to pay Ishmael. Maybe they're just saying this so they don't have to pay Ishmael much. But there's a lot of prejudice apparently by whale men towards people in the merchant service. So um, yeah. The first hundred pages of Moby Dick, and we almost get nowhere, right? It's, you know, when you're reading, you think, wow, there's so much more story to tell, right? But we're almost like, we're like a sixth of the way through the story already. It's really not that long of a novel, and it takes so long to get going. So, like, he just signs onto the ship, or we're already one-sixth of the way through through the tale. Um, but that's where we're going to stop for now. In the next episode, we'll look at the second hundred pages of Moby Dick, which will focus really on the rest of, on the crew, you know, how the, you know, you know, we'll meet Ahab, we'll spend a little bit more time with Queequeg, but it's really, it's more about expanding our, our image and, and seeing what's, what's out there. So that'll, if you're reading along, that's chapter, it's going to be chapter 17 through 40. I'll look at it in the next, in the next episode, up to the chapter called Moby Dick. Um, so that's it. I, I hope if you've read Moby Dick before that I've given you some extra perspective on it. If you haven't read it, I hope I inspire you to read it. It's a great novel. It's something everyone should do once in their life, it seems to me. So thanks as always for listening. Leave your own comments about the first part of Moby Dick below. Don't have to worry about spoilers or anything. I think we all know how this one ends. But uh, please please share your thoughts. Uh, you can also send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com if you don't want to be public. I've noticed the comment section, which used to be a Facebook comment section, has now been uh, kind of taken over by Podbean, and you have to actually register to make, to make comments below. It's You don't have to have a, a podcast or pay or anything to do that, but you, I think you do have to register to, to make comments. Um, but uh, the best way to reach me is email, obviously. So as always, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time with, with second part two of my thoughts on, on Moby Dick. At last there came a Yankee skipper Away you rolling river He winked his eye and he dipped his flipper